Section 7 of The Seven Follies of Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Evans, Urbana, Illinois. The Seven Follies of Science by John Finn. Section 7. Perpetual Motion Absurdities. In this class may be included those inventions which have been made or suggested by honest but ignorant persons in direct violation of the fundamental principles of mechanics and physics. Such inventions, if presented to any expert mechanic or student of science, would be at once condemned as impracticable. But as a general rule, the inventors of these absurd contrivances have been so confident of success that they have published descriptions and sketches of them, and even gone so far as to take out patents before they have tested their inventions by constructing a working machine. It is said that at one time the United States Patent Office issued a circular refusal to all applicants for patents of this kind, but at present, instead of sending such a circular, the applicant is quietly requested to furnish a working model of his invention, and that usually ends the matter. While I have no direct information on the subject, I suspect that the circular was withdrawn because of the amount of useless correspondence in the shape of foolish replies and arguments which it drew forth. To require a working model is a reasonable request, and one for which the law duly provides, and when a successful model is forthcoming, a patent will no doubt be granted, but until that is presented, the officials of the patent office can have no positive information in regard to the practicability of the invention. The earliest mechanical device intended to produce perpetual motion is that known as the overbalancing wheel. This is described in a sketchbook of the 13th century by V. R. de Honcourt, an architect of the period, and since then it has been reinvented hundreds of times. In its simplest forms it is thus described and figured by Ozanam. Figure 5 represents a large wheel, the circumference of which is furnished at equal distances with levers, each bearing at its extremity a weight and movable on a hinge, so that in one direction they can rest upon the circumference, while on the opposite side, being carried away by the weight at the extremity, they are obliged to arrange themselves in the direction of the radius continued. This being supposed, it is evident that when the wheel turns in the direction ABC, the weights A, B, and C will recede from the center. Consequently, as they act with more force, they will carry the wheel towards that side, and as a new lever will be thrown out in proportion as the wheel revolves, it thence follows, say they, that the wheel will continue to move in the same direction. But, notwithstanding the specious appearance of this reasoning, Experience has proved that the machine will not go, and it may indeed be demonstrated that there is a certain position in which the center of gravity of all the weights is in the vertical plane passing through the point of suspension, and that therefore it must stop. Another invention of a similar kind is thus described by the same author. In a cylindrical drum, in perfect equilibrium on its axis, are formed channels as seen in figure 6 which contain balls of lead or a certain quantity of quicksilver. In consequence of this disposition, the balls or quicksilver must, on the one side, ascend by approaching the center, and on the other must roll towards the circumference. The machine ought, therefore, to turn incessantly towards that side. 
In his course of lectures on natural philosophy, Dr. Thomas Young speaks of these contrivances as follows. One of the most common fallacies by which the superficial projectors of machines for obtaining perpetual motion have been deluded has arisen from imagining that any number of weights ascending by a certain path on one side of the center of motion and descending on the other at a greater distance must cause a constant preponderance on the side of the descent. For this purpose, the weights have either been fixed on hinges, which allow them to fall over at a certain point, so as to become more distant from the center, or made to slide or roll along grooves or planes which lead them to a more remote part of the wheel, from whence they return as they ascend. But it will appear on the inspection of such a machine, that although some of the weights are more distant from the center than others, yet there is always a proportionately smaller number of them on that side on which they have the greatest power, so that these circumstances precisely counterbalance each other. He then gives an illustration, figure 7, shown on the preceding page, of a wheel supposed to be capable of producing a perpetual motion, the descending balls acting at a greater distance from the center, but being fewer in number than the ascending. In the model, the balls may be kept in their places by a plate of glass covering the wheel. A more elaborate arrangement, embodying the same idea, is figured and described by Ozanam. The machine, which is shown in figure 8, consists of a kind of wheel formed of six or eight arms, proceeding from a center where the axis of motion is placed. Each of these arms is furnished with a receptacle in the form of a pair of bellows, but those on the opposite arms stand in contrary directions, as seen in the figure. The movable top of each receptacle has affixed to it a weight which shuts it in one situation and opens it in the other. In the last place, the bellows of the opposite arms have a communication by means of a canal, and one of them is filled with quicksilver. These things being supposed, it is visible that the bellows on the one side must open, and those on the other must shut. Consequently, the mercury will pass from the latter into the former, while the contrary will be the case on the opposite side. Ozanam naively adds, It might be difficult to point out the deficiency of this reasoning, but those acquainted with the true principles of mechanics will not hesitate to bet a hundred to one that the machine, when constructed, will not answer the intended purpose. That this bet would have been a perfectly safe one must be quite evident to any person who has the slightest knowledge of practical mechanics, and yet the fundamental idea which is embodied in this and the other examples which we have just given forms the basis of almost all the attempts which have been made to produce a perpetual motion by purely mechanical means. The hydrostatic paradox, by which a few ounces of liquid may apparently balance many pounds or even tons, has frequently suggested a form of apparatus designed to secure a perpetual motion. Dr. Arnott, in his Elements of Physics, relates the following anecdote. A projector thought that the vessel of his contrivance, represented here, figure 9, was to solve the renowned problem of the perpetual motion. It was goblet-shaped, lessening gradually towards the bottom until it became a tube, bent upwards at sea and pointing with an open extremity into the goblet again. He reasoned thus, a pint of water in the goblet A must more than counterbalance an ounce which the tube B will contain, and must, therefore, be constantly pushing the ounce forward into the vessel again at A, and keeping up a stream or circulation 
which will cease only when the water dries up. He was confounded when a trial showed him the same level in A and B. This suggestion has been adopted over and over again by sanguine inventors. Dirks, in his Perpetuum Mobile, tells us that a contrivance on precisely the same principle was proposed by the Abbe de la Roque in Le Journal des Savants, Paris, 1686. The instrument was a U-tube, one leg longer than the other and bent over, so that any liquid might drop into the top end of the short leg, which he proposed to be made of wax, and the long one of iron. Presuming the liquid to be more condensed in the metal than the wax tube, it would flow from the end into the wax tube, and so continue. This is a typical case. A man of learning and of high position is so confident that his theory is right that he does not think it worth while to test it experimentally, but rushes into print and immortalizes himself as the author of a blunder. It is safe to say that this absurd invention will do more to perpetuate his name than all his learning and real achievements. And there are others in the same predicament, circle squares, who, a quarter of a century hence, will be remembered for their errors when all else connected with them will be forgotten. To every miller whose mill ceased working for want of water, the idea has no doubt occurred that if he could only pump the water back again and use it a second or a third time, he might be independent of dry or wet seasons. Of course, no practical miller was ever so far deluded as to attempt to put such a suggestion into practice, but innumerable machines of this kind, and of the most crude arrangement, have been sketched and described in magazines and papers. Figures of wheels driving an ordinary pump, which returns to an elevated reservoir the water which has driven the wheel, are so common that it is not worth while to reproduce any of them. In the following attempt, however, which is copied from Bishop Wilkins' famous book, Mathematical Magic, 1648, the well-known Archimedean screw is employed instead of a pump and the naivete of the good bishop's description and conclusion are well worth the space they will occupy. After an elaborate description of the screw, he says, These things, considered together, it will hence appear how a perpetual motion may seem easily contrivable. For, if there were but such a water-wheel made on this instrument, upon which the stream that is carried up may fall in its descent, it would turn the screw round, and by that means convey as much water up as is required to move it, so that the motion must needs be continual, since the same weight which in its fall does turn the wheel is, by the turning of the wheel, carried up again. Or, if the water falling upon one wheel would not be forcible enough for this effect, why then there might be two, or three, or more, according as the length and elevation of the instrument will admit by which means the weight of it may be so multiplied in the fall that it shall be equivalent to twice or thrice that quantity of water which ascends, as may be more plainly discerned by the following diagram, figure 10, where the figure LM at the bottom does represent a wooden cylinder with helical cavities cut in it, which at AB is supposed to be covered over with ten plates, and three water wheels upon it HIK the lower cistern which contains the water being CD. Now, this cylinder being turned round, all the water which from the cistern ascends through it will fall into the vessel at E, and from that vessel being conveyed upon the water wheel H, shall consequently give a circular motion to the whole screw. Or, if this alone should be too weak for the turning of it, 
then the same water which falls from the wheel H, being received into the other vessel F, may from thence again descend on the wheel I, by which means the force of it will be doubled. And if this be yet insufficient, then may the water, which falls on the second wheel T, be received into the other vessel G, and from thence again descend on the third wheel at K, and so for as many other wheels as the instrument is capable of so that besides the greater distance of these three streams from the center or axis by which they are made so much heavier, and besides that the fall of this outward water is forcible and violent, whereas the ascent of that within is natural, besides all this, there is twice as much water to turn the screw as is carried up by it. But, on the other side, if all the water falling upon one wheel would be able to turn it round, then half of it would serve with two wheels, and the rest may be so disposed of in the fall as to serve unto some other useful, delightful ends. When I first thought of this invention, I could scarce forbear with Archimedes to cry out, Eureka! Eureka! It seeming so infallible a way for the effecting of a perpetual motion that nothing could be so much as probably objected against it. But, upon trial and experience, I find it altogether insufficient for any such purpose and that for these two reasons. One, the water that ascends will not make any considerable stream in the fall. Two, this stream, though multiplied, will not be of force enough to turn about the screw. How well it would have been for many of those inventors, who supposed that they had discovered a successful perpetual motion, if they had only given their contrivances a fair and unprejudiced test, as did the good old bishop. A modification of this device in which mercury is used instead of water, is thus described by a correspondent of the Mechanics Magazine. In figure 11, A is the screw turning on its two pivots, GG. B is a cistern to be filled above the level of the lower aperture of the screw with mercury, which I conceive to be preferable to water on many accounts, and principally because it does not adhere or evaporate like water. C is a reservoir, which, when the screw is turned round, receives the mercury which falls from the top. There is a pipe which, by the force of gravity, conveys the mercury from the reservoir C onto what, for want of a better term, may be called the floatboard E, fixed at right angles to the center axis of the screw, and furnished at its circumference with ridges or floats to intercept the mercury, the moment and weight of which will cause the floatboard and screw to revolve until, by the proper inclination of the floats, the mercury falls into the receiver F, from whence it again falls, by its spout, into the cistern G, where the constant revolution of the screw takes it up again as before. He then suggests some difficulties which the ball, seen just under the letter E, is intended to overcome, but he confesses that he has never tried it, and to any practical mechanic it is very obvious that the machine will not work but we give the description in the language of the inventor as a fair type of this class of perpetual motion machines. In the year 1790, Dr. Schweiers took out a patent for a machine in which small metal balls were used instead of a liquid, and they were raised by a sort of chain pump which delivered them upon the circumference of a large wheel, which was thus caused to revolve. It was claimed for this invention that it kept going for some months, but any mechanic who will examine the doctor's drawing must see that it could not have continued in motion 
after the initial impulse had been expended. That property of liquids known as capillary action has been frequently called to the aid of perpetual motion seekers, and the fact that although water will, in capillary tubes and sponges, rise several inches above the general level, it will not overflow, has been a startling surprise to the would-be inventors. Perhaps the most notable instance of a mistake of this kind occurred in the case of the famous Sir William Congreve, the inventor of the military rockets that bore his name, and the author of certain improvements in matches which were called after him. It was thus described and figured in an article which appeared in the Atlas, London, and was copied into the Mechanics Magazine, London, for 1827. The celebrated Boyle entertained an idea that perpetual motion might be obtained by means of capillary attraction, and indeed there seems but little doubt that nature has employed this force in many instances to produce this effect. There are many situations in which there is every reason to believe that the sources of springs on the tops and sides of mountains depend on the accumulation of water created at certain elevations by the operation of capillary attraction, acting in large masses of porous material or through laminated substances. These masses being saturated in process of time become the sources of springs in the heads of rivers, and thus, by an endless round of ascending and descending waters, form, on the great scale of nature, an incessant cause of perpetual motion, in the purest acceptance of the term, and precisely on the principle that was contemplated by Boyle. It is probable, however, that any imitation of this process on the limited scale practicable by human art would not be of sufficient magnitude to be effective. Nature, by the immensity of her operations, is able to allow for a slowness of process which would baffle the attempts of man in any direct and simple imitation of her works. Working, therefore, upon the same causes, he finds himself obliged to take a more complicated mode to produce the same effect. To amuse the hours of a long confinement from illness, Sir William Congreve has recently contrived a scheme of perpetual motion, founded on this principle of capillary attraction, which, it is apprehended, will not be subject to the general refutation applicable to those plans in which the power is supposed to be derived from gravity only. Sir William's perpetual motion is as follows. Let ABC, figure 12, be three horizontal rollers fixed in a frame, AAA, etc., is an endless band of sponge running round these rollers, and BBB, etc., is an endless chain of weights surrounding the band of sponge, and attached to it, so that they must move together, every part of this band and chain being so accurately uniform in its weight that the perpendicular side AB will, in all positions of the band and chain, be in equilibrium with the hypotenuse AC on the principle of the inclined plane. Now, if the frame in which these rollers are fixed be placed in a cistern of water, having its lower part immersed therein, so that the water's edge cuts the upper part of the rollers BC, then, if the weight and quantity of the endless chain be duly proportioned to the thickness and breadth of the band of sponge, the band and chain will, on the water in the cistern being brought to the proper level, begin to move round the rollers in the direction AB, by the force of capillary attraction, and will continue so to move. The process is as follows. On the side AB of the triangle, the weights BBB, etc., hanging perpendicularly alongside the band of sponge, the band is not compressed by them, and its pores being left open, 
the water at the point X, at which the band meets its surface, will rise to a certain height Y above its level, and thereby create a load, which load will not exist on the ascending side, CA, because on this side the chain of weights compresses the band at the water's edge and squeezes out any water that may have previously accumulated in it, so that the band rises in a dry state, the weight of the chain having been so proportioned to the breadth and thickness of the band as to be sufficient to produce this effect. The load, therefore, on the descending side AB, not being opposed by any similar load on the ascending side, and the equilibrium of the other parts not being disturbed by the alternate expansion and compression of the sponge, the band will begin to move in the direction AB, and as it moves downwards, the accumulation of water will continue to rise, and thereby carry on a constant motion, provided the load at XY be sufficient to overcome the friction on the rollers ABC. Now, to ascertain the quantity of this load in any particular machine, it must be stated that it is found by experiment that the water will rise in a fine sponge about an inch above its level. If, therefore, the band and sponge be one foot thick and six feet broad, the area of its horizontal section in contact with the water would be 864 square inches, and the weight of the accumulation of water raised by capillary attraction being one inch rise upon 864 square inches would be 30 pounds, which, it is conceived, would be much more than equivalent to the friction of the rollers. The article, inspired no doubt by Sir William, then goes on to give elaborate reasons for the success of the device, but all these are met by the damning fact that the machine never worked. Some time afterwards, Sir William, at considerable expense, published a pamphlet in which he explained and defended his views. If he had only had a working model made, and the thing had continued in motion for a few hours, he would have silenced all objectors far more quickly and forcibly than he ever could have done by any amount of argument. And in his case, there could have been no excuse for his not making a small machine after the plans that he published, and even patented. He was wealthy, and could have commanded the services of the best mechanics in London, but no working model was ever made. Many inventors of perpetual motion machines offer their poverty as an excuse for not making a model or a working machine. Thus Dirks, in his Perpetuum Mobile, gives an account of a mechanic, a model maker, who had a neat brass model of a timepiece, in which were two steel balls A and B, B to fall in a semicircular gallery C, and be carried to the end D of a straight trough DE, while A in its turn rolls to E, and so on continuously, only the gallery C not being screwed in its place, we are desired to take the will for the deed until twenty shillings be raised to complete this part of the work. And Mr. Dirks also quotes from the builder of June, 1847, This vain delusion, if not still in force, is at least as standing a fallacy as ever. Joseph Hutt, a framework knitter in the neighborhood of the enlightened town of Hinckley, professes to have discovered it, perpetual motion, and only wants twenty pounds, as usual, to set it a-going. The following rather curious arrangement was described in the Mechanics Magazine for 1825. I beg leave to offer the prefixed device. The point at which, like all the rest, it fails, I confess I did not, as I do now, plainly perceive at once, although it is certainly very obvious. The original idea was this, to enable a body which would float in a heavy medium and sink in a lighter one, 
to pass successively through the one to the other, the continuation of which would be the end in view. To say that vows cannot be made to act as proposed will not be to show the rationale, if I may so say, upon which the idea is fallacious. The figure is supposed to be tubular and made of glass for the purpose of seeing the action of the balls inside, which float or fall as they travel from air through water and from water through air. The foot is supposed to be placed in water, but it would answer the same purpose if the bottom were closed. Description of the engraving, figure 13, number 1, the left leg filled with water from B to A. 2 and 3, valves, having in their centers very small projecting valves. They all open upwards. 4, the right leg, containing air from A to F. 5 and 6, valves, having very small ones in their centers, they all open downwards. The whole apparatus is supposed to be air and watertight. The round figures represent hollow balls, which will sink one-fourth of their bulk in water, of course will fall in air. The weight, therefore, of three balls resting upon one ball in water, as at E, will just bring its top even with the water's edge. The weight of four balls will sink it under the surface until the ball immediately over it is one-fourth its bulk in water, when the underball will escape round the corner at C and begin to ascend. The machine is supposed in the figure to be in action, and number eight, one of the balls, to have just escaped round the corner at C, and to be, by its buoyancy, rising up to valve number three, striking first the small projecting valve in the center, which when opened, the large one will be raised by the buoyancy of the ball, because the moment the small valve in the center is opened, although only the size of a pin's head, number two valve will have taken upon itself to sustain the whole column of water from A to B. The said ball, number eight, having passed through the valve number three, will, by appropriate weights or springs, close. The ball will proceed upwards to the next valve, number two, and perform the same operation there. Having arrived at A, it will float upon the surface three-fourths of its bulk out of water. Upon another ball in due course arriving under it, it will be lifted quite out of the water and fall over the point D, pass into the right leg, containing air, and fall to valve number five. Strike and open the small valve in its center, then open the large one and pass through. This valve will then, by appropriate weights or springs, close. The ball will roll on through the bent tube, which is made in that form to gain time as well as to exhibit motion, to the next valve, number six, where it will perform the same operation, and then, falling upon the four balls at E, force the bottom one round the corner at C. This ball will proceed as did number eight, and the rest in the same manner successively. That an ordinary amateur mechanic should be misled by such arguments is perhaps not so surprising, when we remember that the famous John Bernoulli claimed to have invented a perpetual motion based on the difference between the specific gravities of two liquids. A translation of the original Latin may be found in the Encyclopedia Britannica, volume 18, page 555. Some of the premises on which he depends are, however, impossibilities, and Professor Crystal concludes his notice of the invention thus. One really is at a loss with Bernoulli's wonderful theory, whether to admire most the conscientious statement of the hypothesis, the prim logic of the demonstration, so carefully cut according to the pattern of the ancients, or the weighty superstructure built on so frail a foundation.
Most of our perpetual motions were clearly the result of too little learning. Surely this one was the product of too much. A more simple device was suggested recently by a correspondent of power. He describes it thus. The J-shaped tube A, figure 14, is open at both ends, but tapers at the lower end, as shown. A well-greased cotton rope C passes over the wheel B, and through the small opening of the tube with practically little or no friction, and also without leakage. The tube is then filled with water. The rope above the line WX balances over the pulley, and so does that below the line YZ. The rope in the tube between these lines is lifted by the water, while the rope on the other side of the pulley between these lines is pulled downward by gravity. The inventor offers the above suggestion rather as a kind of puzzle than as a sober attempt to solve the famous problem, and he concludes by asking why it will not work. In addition to the usual resistance or friction offered by the air to all motion, there are four drawbacks. 1. The friction in its bearings of the axle of the wheel B. 2. The power required to bend and unbend the rope. 3. The friction of the rope in passing through the water from Z to X and its tendency to raise a portion of the water above the level of the water at X. 4. The friction at the point Y, this last being the most serious of all. An opening of the tube with practically little or no friction, and also without leakage, is a mechanical impossibility. In order to have the joint watertight, the tube must hug the rope very tightly. This would make friction enough to prevent any motion. And the longer the column of the water XZ, the greater will be the tendency to leak, and consequently the tighter must be the joint, and the greater the friction thereby created. A favorite idea with perpetual motion seekers is the utilization of the force of magnetism. Sometime prior to the year 1579, Johannes Theisnerus wrote a book which is now in the British Museum and in which considerable space is devoted to continual motions to the solving of this problem by magnetism. Bishop Wilkins, in his Mathematical Magic, describes one of the many devices which have been invented with this end in view. He says... But amongst all these kinds of invention, that is most likely wherein a lodestone is so disposed that it shall draw unto it on a reclined plane a bullet of steel, which steel as it ascends near to the lodestone may be contrived to fall down through some hole in the plane, and so return unto the place from whence at first it began to move, and, being there, the lodestone will again attract it upwards till coming to this hole it will fall down again and so the motion shall be perpetual, as may be more easily conceivable by this figure, figure 15. Suppose the lodestone to be represented at AB, which, though it have not strength enough to attract the bullet C directly from the ground, yet may do it by the help of the plane EF. Now when the bullet is come to the top of this plane, its own gravity, which is supposed to exceed the strength of the lodestone, will make it fall into that hole at E and the force it receives in this fall will carry it with such violence to the other end of this arch that it will open the passage which is there made for it, and by its return will again shut it, so that the bullet, as at first, is in the same place whence it was attracted, and consequently must move perpetually. Notwithstanding the positiveness of the must at the close of his description, it is very obvious to any practical mechanic that the machine will not move at all, far less move perpetually, and the bishop himself, after carefully and conscientiously discussing the objections, comes to the same conclusion.
He ends by saying, so that none of all these magnetical experiments, which have been as yet discovered, are sufficient for the effecting of a perpetual motion, though these kind of qualities seem most conducible unto it, and perhaps hereafter it may be contrived from them. It has occurred to several would-be inventors of perpetual motion that, if some substance could be found which would prevent the passage of the magnetic force, then by interposing a plate of this material at the proper moment between the magnet and the piece of iron to be attracted, a perpetual motion might be obtained. Several inventors have claimed that they have discovered such a non-conducting substance, but it is needless to say that their claims had no foundation in fact, and if they had discovered anything of the kind, it would have required just as much force to interpose it as would have been gained by the interposition. It has been fully proved that in every case where a machine was made to work apparently by the interposition of such a material, a fraud was perpetrated, and the machine was really made to move by means of some concealed springs or weights. A correspondent of the Mechanics Magazine, Volume 12, London, 1829, gives the following curious design for a self-moving railway carriage. He describes it as a machine which, were it possible to make its parts hold together unimpaired by rotation or the ravages of time, and to give it a path encircling the earth, would assuredly continue to roll along in one undeviating course until time shall be no more. A series of inclined planes are to be erected in such a manner that a cone will ascend one, its sides forming an acute angle, and being raised to the summit, descend on the next, having parallel sides, at the foot of which it must rise on a third, and fall on a fourth, and so continue to do alternately throughout. The diagram, figure 16, is the section of a carriage, capital A, with broad conical wheels, lowercase a, lowercase a resting on the inclined plane, B. The entrance to the carriage is from above, and there are ample accommodations for goods and passengers. The most singular property of this contrivance is that its speed increases the more it is laden and when checked on any part of the road, it will, when the cause of stoppage is removed, proceed on its journey by mere power of gravity. Its path may be a circular road formed of the inclined planes. But to avoid a circuitous route, a double road ought to be made. The carriage not having a retrograde motion on the inclined planes, a road to set out upon, and another to return by, are indispensable. How anyone could ever imagine that such a contrivance would ever continue in motion for even a short time, except, perhaps, on the famous Descensus Averni, must be a puzzle to every sane mechanic. I therefore give it as a climax to the absurdities which have been proposed in sober earnest. As a fitting close, however, to this chapter of human folly, I give the following joke from the Penny Magazine, published by the Society for the Diffusion of Useful Knowledge. Father! I have invented a perpetual motion, said a little fellow of eight years old. It is thus. I would make a great wheel and fix it up like a water wheel. And at the top, I would hang a great weight. And at the bottom, I would hang a number of little weights. Then the great weight would turn the wheel half round and sink to the bottom, because it is so heavy. And when the little weights reach the top, they would sink down, because they are so many. And thus the wheel would turn round forever. The child's fallacy is a type of all the blunders which are made on this subject. Follow a projector in his description, and if it be not perfectly unintelligible, which it often is, it always proves that he expects to find certain of his movements alternately strong and weak, not according to the laws of nature, 
but according to the wants of his mechanism. End of section 7